Continuing my look at David Michelinie and Todd McFarlane's run on The Amazing Spider-Man, the first two parts of which can be found in episodes 165 and 170. We continue with issue 310, Shrike Force, with the series returning to a monthly schedule after the bi-weekly shenanigans of the last few issues. On the cover, Spider-Man fights a figure similar to Batman, but with a blonde hipster top knot on his head. As with issue 305, one could accuse Mr. McFarlane of being a tad lazy here, given that 50% of the cover is black. Still, the city background is pretty cool, although Spider-Man seems to have an ankle that dislocates from his leg. Oh, and this isn't Batman, it's Killer Shrike, who isn't traditionally a Spider-Man villain, so these kind of stories can go either way. Sometimes we get the Juggernaut, other times the Stiltman. The bi-weekly grind has a holdover. Todd has had a few deadline problems keeping up, and as such, the backgrounds for this issue were inked by Terry Fitzgerald. I do not suspect that this will result in any perceptible difference in the look of the art. The story opens with Killer Shrike robbing an armoured transport, with captions telling us that the Shrike is a rather nasty small bird who tends to prey on spiders. Talk about signposting it. The Batman motif is on full display, with Shrike's large black cape, mask, trunk, boots and grey body stocking. Marvel obviously getting ahead of the game with the Batman stuff, a full six months before the 1989 Batman movie will be released. Shrike is doing well. He doesn't want to hurt anyone, so if the guards just back off a bit, he'll take his money and be on his way. Sadly, a guard doesn't want to play ball, and Shrike goes in for the kill. It's a standard opener for a superhero tale. McFarlane is really heavy on the inks as we move into the non-more black Spinal Tap territory, with every panel in the opening two pages having a thick black border of at least 18 point. The storytelling isn't clear either. It's not made obvious where Shrike is in relation to the guard reaching for the gun until the wide shot on page three. But we already saw two guards unconscious on the splash page. It's not stated, but I assumed from watching too many movies, not the most reliable arbiter of truth, I admit, that only two guards work on an armoured bank truck. This means that the third one comes from nowhere. Still, our hero shows up and stops the murder. More sloppy storytelling here. Shrike throws a dumpster at Spider-Man, a dumpster that changes in colours in between panels. However, the art makes it seem that the dumpster is being seen thrown at the guards. But Spider-Man dodges out of the way, and it's left to the captions to explain that Spider-Man was knocking the dumpster away from the guards. So, a muddy and not entirely well-executed opening... There's no denying that McFarlane's shots of Spider-Man swinging through the city on pages 3 and 4 are great. It's the basic storytelling that needs work. Spidey picks up his camera and webs home. He's returning to college and thus needs money to pay for the course, which feels a little bit disingenuous at this time in his history. He's now a published author. He's just been on TV quite a lot, which will have brought in additional money on top of what he's earning from the book. And MJ is apparently quite well paid. Taking all this money that he's just earned from the tour, he should have saved it knowing that he was going back to college, which he did, because we've already referred to it in previous issues. That's the responsible adult thing to do, Peter. If you know something's coming up that's going to cost a bit of money, you start saving up prior to that so that you can afford it. Peter whining about money now 
Feels like one of those rich guys moaning about how much tax they pay. You can't need the money too much, because he never actually takes these photos to the Daily Bugle. At home, Murray Jane tells Peter she has changed the lock so Jonathan Caesar can't get back in, because, as Stanley pointed out, old villains never die. They're just referenced in the next issue. It's another cute bit, with Peter having to hide on the ceiling quickly so as to avoid the locksmith, and MJ says that after Peter has been to register at ESU, they should meet up at 21 for dinner and then come home for dessert. Why, Murray Jane, whatever do you have in mind? As I said, it's a cute bit, but why didn't Peter just go straight to ESU? In fact, what was he doing when he encountered Killer Shrike? Anyway, at ESU, Peter meets his fellow research assistant, Anne-Marie Baker, and the Doctor, Swan, who is a bit odd. New equipment arrives, and Swan acts all weird about it, especially when Anne asks, how can they afford this when the budget's already been allocated? Peter stays quiet, but his spider sense is giving off a mild tingle. Later, Murray Jane and Peter have been watching Bambi, of all things. It appears to be the Disney one. I have no idea if this got a cinematic re-release in late 1988, nor why this would be a date movie du jour for Peter and Murray Jane, especially when that modern classic, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, was out. Peter hasn't been paying attention anyway. He's been distracted all evening because that niggling little spider sense tingle. He leaves MJ at home and goes to look into it. On the one hand, this is another cute scene. Peter tries to lie to MJ about going to get some fudge from Baskin Robbins before he caves and tells her the truth. On the other, he's ditching a date night with his beautiful young wife to go and play superhero. Hmm, real life, this kind of thing would probably prove the death knell for the relationship. Nevertheless, Spider-Man swings across to ESU, where Dr. Swan has set fire to the midnight oil, and Spidey tells him he's going to take a look in that private lab, no matter the cost. Spider-Man clearly having no concept of what the word private actually means. Also, as he tells him this, he's hanging from a Venetian blind. There is no way a Venetian blind would support Spider-Man's weight. It turns out that lurking in the private lab is the terrible tinkerer. He's back, making devices for high-paying clients. In this case, something that can create phantom electrons which will double and sometimes triple the speed and power of certain weapon systems. And guess, lovely listener, who his client is. Yes, it's Killer Shrike. And for an additional point, can you guess what time Shrike had arranged to come to ESU to pick up his new gadget? Yes, it's right now. Want to go for double jeopardy? This confluence of coincidence is commented upon by Spider-Man, which in no way excuses the laziness of the writing. Also, Killer Shrike bursts in through the window that Spider-Man just left open. So if someone could explain to me where all that glass came from all over the floor, I'd be very grateful. Consistency of storytelling is further chucked out of that same window for the fight, where the lab seems to increase in size to accommodate Spider-Man and Shrike's battle, which has a batch of flammable chemicals just carelessly left lying around, in contravenance of certain health and safety rules. 
Spidey must get Swan to cover. Shrike threatens to kill the Tinkerer if he doesn't give him the power booster. See, he doesn't have the money. Tell Jabber. No, that's a different thing, isn't it? See, he doesn't have the money as Spider-Man stopped his withdrawal earlier, which is stupid. Shrike had destroyed the armoured van. The bags were just lying around on the floor. Shrike didn't think to just pick up even just one or two of them as he fled the scene. Villains aren't very bright, though, are they? Shrike moves in on Spider-Man, preparing to deliver the death blow. However, this isn't the Tinkerer's first shady rodeo, and he withholds the trigger circuit, without which the device just backfires. Spidey takes Shrike out, the Tinkerer gets away in all the confusion, and Dr. Swan turns himself in. It turns out that Swan was being blackmailed by the Tinkerer, who found out that Dr. Swan had bought his high school diploma, having not graduated due to family problems. What? So, so let me get this straight. The, Dr. Swan is clearly about 44 years old, so high school is, what, 25 years in the rearview mirror, and he got all of his other qualifications legitimately. So who gives a shit about high school? It's so far in the rearview mirror at this point, would anybody really care? Secondly, why was the Tinkerer investigating Dr. Swan in the first place? What made the Tinkerer randomly look up this ESU professor and then happen to find some dirt on him just to use the secret lab that he has at the back of his classroom? This is, this is silly. The Tinkerer had labs all over New York. This is dumber than the cast of The Only Way is Essex. McFarlane's art has some energy to it and carries the story in places, but it also lets the side down, with some rudimentary sequential storytelling basics like place and movement missing or lacklustre. It's very much a filler issue, moving us past the Jonathan Caesar Webb's World Tour story and into the next part of Peter and MJ's life. Sadly, the next phase of Peter and MJ's life seems to be to get embroiled in a tedious X-Men crossover event. Issues 311, 312 and 313 all find themselves part of the Inferno company-wide Marvel Comics crossover of this period. A situation that bears no real relevance when read in a Spider-Man omnibus 30-odd years later. Inferno derailed Marvel's line for nearly a year in 1988-1989, but was thankfully mostly confined to the X-Men comics, which I'd long past paying any attention to. As such, I couldn't care less about Inferno then or now. Something to do with demonic invasions and concerns the X-Men characters, who gives a shit? The cover, though, shows Spider-Man reflected in Mysterio's goldfish-inspired helmet, giving away that the villain this month is... Mysterio. As far as this issue is concerned, Inferno is deftly handled. Buildings are coming to life outside the New York City library, and Spider-Man must stop two stone lions from stomping on people. He does this by swinging the two rock monsters at each other so they smash into pieces. As he does this, a small figure tells an unseen adversary that Spider-Man is at the 42nd Street Library. Now! Spidey is then accosted by a brick building coming to life, whilst preventing the mugging of Tommy and Bev by long-standing member of the supporting cast, Peanuts Mulrooney. What's, what's that? You've never, you've never heard of Peanuts Mulrooney? Where have you been? Spider-Man has been taking down Peanuts since the early days of the strip. 
He is in no way a one-shot, never-before-seen character who's been given a tenuous attachment to the lead character just so we can establish a plot point later on. And if you were to suggest such a thing, you're a commie pig. Mulrooney is bald, but has dreadlocks, which is not a look anyone would ever consider fashionable. Spider-Man saves Tommy and Bev, but Tommy tries to help Spidey back by fighting the rock wall, and is crushed to death under the wall's bricky fist for his troubles. It's a gruesome and pointless death amidst all this silliness, and it sends Spider-Man and poor Bev, presumably, spiralling into a funk. Okay, I'm going to jump ahead here because I think this needs explaining. Peter, as you may expect, blames himself for this. And it takes Murray Jane to pull him out of it by saying that Tommy was the kind of guy who tried to help people, just like Peter is. His death would have happened if Peter was there or not. Which isn't actually true, because one, Murray Jane doesn't know this guy and therefore doesn't know what his personality is like. And two, if Peter hadn't been there, they'd have been mugged by peanuts and then probably just gone about their merry way. So, you know, whatever. However, as the story unfolds, we learn that the stone lions were part of Inferno, but the stone building was not. That was Mysterio. Spoilers, he's the bad guy. He wanted Spider-Man to feel guilt over Tommy's death, so as to undermine Spider-Man's confidence. Peanuts was part of the plan. So was the mugging staged. Were Tommy and Bev in on it? Were Tommy and Bev even real? If the stone building was an illusion were Tommy and Bev. So is Tommy dead or not? And if he's not, who did the police, who Spider-Man called after the death, take away in a body bag? If Tommy and Bev were real, and Tommy really is dead, then Mysterio's a murderer, which isn't mentioned. I really don't think this aspect of the story was explained well enough. And I think the reason for that is the art. McFarlane now seems to be going off the charts with what he's drawing, or Michelini is giving McFarlane batshit stuff to draw because McFarlane has the attention span of a small child on a sugar high. This issue exists solely for McFarlane to do some great layouts, nifty-looking splash pages, science fiction aliens, and Murray Jane in a skimpy crop top, and he does all of this very well. But he doesn't leave much of a story to hang any of it on. There's a brief cameo from Kurt Connors cluing us up for a future appearance by the Lizard, and we learn that Dr. Swan is still at ESU following the events of last issue, but with his tenure and his privileges removed. That's about it, really. Spider-Man goes through the motions, as always with a Mysterio story. There are illusions, robotics, and mist, but ultimately, he's no match for Spider-Man, and the issue closes with Harry Osborn having a dream about the Green Goblin, with the Hobgoblin watching him from afar. Maybe I was wrong about it being deftly handled. Inferno is not off to an auspicious start. Let's hope it improves with issue 312, which has a cool fanboy cover. For a long time, we've wanted to see the Green Goblin versus the Hobgoblin, so this cover, which features just that, is pretty damn good. The Goblin War opens with Harry Osborn now dressed in daddy's clothes and yelling that someone has pushed me too far is a great splash page. The Green Goblin is a weird design anyway, so it fits right in with McFarlane's OTT style. Harry is looking a bit sweaty, and he snaps back to normal, reminiscing about his father being the Green Goblin, not him, and his father was consumed and driven insane by the formula he took to give him super strength. Harry, hopped up on poppers, carried on the legacy for a while, but after marrying Liz Allen and settling down with baby Normie, he forgot all about his past. 
Sadly, this being comics, he's not allowed to do that. And the Hobgoblin, not the original Hobgoblin, it needs pointing out, crashed his life demanding to know where it was. Harry has no idea what it is. So he lies to the Hobgoblin that it is in his office in Manhattan. And Hobgoblin says he'll be back. The art makes it look like Hobgoblin kidnaps Normie. But he doesn't. That's a goof and never referred to again. Now, I know what you're thinking. And you're right. Andrew, you're thinking, when did this happen? Well, lovely listener, as this is a pointless crossover of inconvenience, all Marvel comics are forced to take part, including the other lesser Spider-Man comics, and this all happened in Web of Spider-Man issue 47, reinforcing my opinion once again that Web was only essential reading when it crossed over into Amazing. McFarlane does some really impressive work in these opening pages, which makes sense. As noted, the Green Goblin's slightly goofy design plays into his strengths as an artist. It already looks strange, so McFarlane's quirkiness suits him. But McFarlane also does a great job with the Hobgoblin. The hood and large cloak mean McFarlane can play around with light and shadow, and he can let that same hood and cloak do a lot of his work in his interpretation of the character. Harry zooms over on his goblin glider to his Manhattan office, albeit a little shakier than usual, and finds the Hobgoblin already there. He turns to look at Harry. You lied, he cries as we cut to the Daily Bugle. Peter has dropped by to ask if there are any assignments. Jonah stirs at Peter as if he has a hole in his head. The Statue of Liberty snarled at tourists this morning, Parker, and the Staten Island ferry sprouted fins and swam out to sea. The entire city's a story, Parker. Get me photos! Jonah isn't wrong. Peter's a dunce. Meanwhile, Harry has to confess he doesn't have the slightest clue what the it the Hobgoblin wants is, and this causes a fight. Like the Daleks versus the Cybermen, the Hobgoblin versus the Green Goblin was a fanboy fantasy, so it's a shame that this isn't the real Hobgoblin or the real Green Goblin, both of whom are dead at this point. McFarlane's fight scenes are fun, big splashy panels and lots of pumpkin bomb action, but we still need to bring Spider-Man into this somehow. Fortunately, Liz has left a message at home for Peter, telling him Harry has gone after the Hobgoblin and were. Remember when involving people in stories involved more than a mobile phone call? He hits the skies as Spider-Man swinging over to Osborne Industries. Mary Jane is meanwhile modelling some kind of Cleopatra-type costume, complete with black wig. The Inferno crossover, which seems to be happening around Spider-Man rather than directly involving him, does involve Murray Jane, whose gold jewellery comes to life, attacking her and the photo crew. Fortunately, MJ isn't stupid, and as she loves only gold, she's well aware it's a soft metal, and she and the crew hack the bracelets and headdress she's wearing into itty-bitty pieces. This is again a neat scene, showing MJ taking the lead, as well as having someone point out that the insurance claim on this is going to be a pain in the ass. There's a minor subplot about the lizard who seems to be popping out of Kurt Connors at weird times, but we're really here for the Spider-Man Hobgoblin Green Goblin three-way. This Hobgoblin is former villain Jack O'Lantern, who does have some measure of super abilities, I think. The Hobgoblin is after the formula that made Norman Osborn super strong, but Harry doesn't have any, which implies Harry never took that formula, or he'd presumably still be super strong. As such, he's not that great when it comes to fighting the Hobgoblin, so he's quite happy when Spider-Man shows up. He also doesn't seem to remember that Peter is Spider-Man, so that's one weight off Peter's shoulders. The rest of the issue is the fight, and it's kind of churlish to complain about this one, as it's really what we're here for. 
It's like moaning about the boxing getting in the way of the drama in Rocky IV. It's what we're here to see. Visually, it's fantastic, McFarlane loading for Burr with loads of big, splashy panels and explosive effects. As with the last issue, there's nothing to chew on here, but it's fun in its own way. McFarlane fave the Lizard dominates the cover of issue 313, his scaled face open to reveal spiky fangs moving in to devour a bloody and beaten Spider-Man. It's actually pretty good, doing a good job of making the Lizard genuinely scurry. McAlhiney gets fully into the surrealism of Inferno for the opening as a shark is seen swimming through the Midtown Tunnel, which, for those who don't know, is not underwater. Peter and MJ are in fact in a taxi. The shark rips the top off the cab, the taxi careens into a nearby parked car, and as MJ hides the cab driver's face, Peter straps on his web shooters and pulls the shark towards him before punching it in the face. This is the content I'm here for. If you've ever wanted to see Peter Parker punch a shark in the face, this is the comic for you. It's a magnificently ridiculous opening, so stupid, and yet so much fun. Yes, I feel a little bit sorry for the shark, but let's be honest. If you're scared of sharks and have decided that because of that fear you will never step into the water, only to find it touring towards you in a tunnel, then all bets are off. Peter and MJ convince the cabbie to drive on, which he happily does, taking our loved-up couple to Queens. Meanwhile, in Manhattan, well, at ESU, Dr. Kirk Connor suddenly finds that due to Inferno, he can no longer control the metamorphosis into the lizard. This culminates in a great shot of the lizard on the bottom of page four, one of McFarlane's best pieces of work so far. In Queens, Peter and MJ are visiting Aunt May, but she isn't in as she's gone to visit Peter and MJ. Irony. MJ's cousin Christy is in, but she's merely a cameo, her story being further explored over in Spectacular Spider-Man. Peter is afraid that if Aunt May is out in a city that's going absolutely crazy, she may run into the madness created by Inferno, and switches to Spider-Man and leaves via the back door, just as May enters in via the front. Still, it gets Spidey into the action, action that also requires innocent lives be endangered. So, also heading towards Manhattan and ESU are Martha and Billy Connors. Under McFarlane's thick black lines, they barely resemble any incarnation of Martha and Billy seen in previous issues, to the point where I wonder if editor Jim Salakrup even bothered to give McFarlane a model sheet. Two interesting points here. Number one, Martha refers to Kurt having lost his arm in the war. Presumably under the Marvel sliding timescale, this is now Vietnam rather than World War II. And B, the license plate of Martha and Billy's car is ASM 313, which is of course the issue that the car appeared in. This one, for those not paying attention. This is in and of itself, not that interesting at all. However, the idea of having car license plates refer to important issue numbers would be carried over to the current Spider-Man movies, Homecoming and Far From Home. Honest, next time you watch those films, check out the license plates. They all refer to events in the comics that were nicked for the films. It's quite clever, really. Peter swings home, but May hasn't been there, so he heads to ESU, as the only other place May would go to look for Peter. These problems could be avoided if only we had a mobile communications device. Although, Inferno would probably be blocking the signal. He swings over to ESU, but on the way he encounters the Spider-Man Macy's Day Parade balloon that has been Infernoized and come to life. Another couple of interesting notes here. 
The kids that free the balloon, Jason Clemens and Troy Tyro, are real people. Jason won a competition to be an issue of Amazing Spider-Man, and this was the one. Lucky kid. Secondly, in the New York of the Spider-Man reality, would they really have a Macy's Day Parade balloon of him? I mean, they'd have the thing, probably. Born and bred New Yorker, maybe Captain America. But wanted criminal and notorious menace Spider-Man? Seems unlikely. Basically, this is a distraction technique, as we don't want Spider-Man to get to ESU too quickly. Some of this is cool. The Spider-Man balloon's 180-degree head turn is effectively horrific, and funny simultaneously. Spider-Man yelling CRUMB as he pierces the balloon with the spire from atop the Chrysler building, and the balloon's face after he's pricked are all wonderful. The gag about the balloon's eyes being wrong is a little bit too much of a smug in-joke. Finally, Spider-Man arrives at ESU, just in time to prevent the lizard from eating Martha and Billy. He does the usual patented whip-up-a-cure trick, but it doesn't work. Spidey reasons that the lizard's change is electrochemical in nature, and a massive electric shock might help. It might also kill him, but Billy and Martha are dead if he doesn't at least try, so he rips up an electricity cable from beneath the floor. However, Billy prevents Spidey from electrocuting his father, and the lizard is forced to electrocute himself, thanks to a momentary lucid moment from Kurt Connors. This is probably the best of the Inferno issues. It actually deals with a decent threat that has a personal connection to Spider-Man, whereas the other two alluded to that, with Mysterio having jack-all to do with the overall Inferno arc, and the Green Goblin-Hobgoblin fight being nearly fun fan service. Spider-Man always feels bad about Kurt, as he cured him, so his lapses always feel personal, and the ending, Kurt having to pack his family off for their own safety, is suitably tragic. Yes, an argument can be made, as with all crossovers, that it derails the main character's stories, and this is true. Inferno means nothing in the overall tapestry of Spider-Man's life and history, but at least it didn't feel like these three issues were just a massive waste of time. But we're back to normal, and the issue closes by bringing Jonathan Caesar, who, after conversations with his lawyer, promises to make Murray Jane's life a living nightmare. He proceeds to do just that in issue 314, the Christmas 1988 issue. Down and out in Forest Hills, sees Spider-Man forcibly kicked out of the Bedford Towers apartment building he shares with MJ by a foot that does not seem connected to a leg or indeed a body. MJ sits dejected on the stoop and Father Christmas's merry ho 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 is interrupted by the action. And stay out, cries the disembodied foot. It's quite a funny cover for not a terribly funny life event, and it sums up the weird tonal discrepancies in this era. Is it dark and moody, like McFarlane's art seems to depict, or is there a lightness of touch to the proceedings? It seems that McAlaney and McFarlane are working on a different story here, and this just gets more pronounced as the events of the issue unfold. McFarlane's art is grim and dark throughout, with more of those thick black borders and heavy inks he's been favouring these past few issues. McAlini's story, though, despite the overtones and unpleasantness of being evicted on Christmas Eve, has many moments of levity. Case in point, the opening scene. Peter and MJ, with May in tow, are informed that Jonathan Sees has evicted them because the purchase contract was non-binding. MJ's savings are tied up in the condo, and as such it will take a while, and quite a lot of legal red tape, to sort it out. 
The lawyer is a shyster, a slimy conman hiding behind the law to enable him to be a scumbag, and Peter threatens him with violence. It's not overtly nasty, though, McLeany's dialogue being quite playful and fun. McFarlane, though, has thrown away the style guide completely. If this were a TV show, it would be a new season, and the actors playing Peter, MJ and Aunt May have all been replaced by new actors. They look a bit like the old actors, if you squint, but not a lot. That said, McFarlane's character work here is well done. Facial expressions are, well, expressive, with Peter's anger and the smug lawyer being well defined on page two. Aunt May offers her loft as storage for Peter and MJ's stuff, and also says that Peter's old room is still available. If May is still running the home for the elderly, how many bedrooms did that old Forest Hills house have? If it had as many as stated, why the hell didn't Peter and May just sell it after Ben died, move somewhere smaller and pocket the cash? It would have made their lives a lot easier. And this is, of course, ignoring that the Forest Hills home has been sold, not sold, destroyed, not destroyed, and generally ignored, until such a time as it needs not to be, more times than I can remember. Peter lets Pride intervene, and tells May that they have somewhere to stay, which is news to Mary Jane. They make arrangements for their stuff to be picked up, and Peter is forced to confess to MJ that he doesn't have anywhere for them to stay, but going back to May feels like a retrograde step for him. Pride is all very well and good, Peter, but as MJ points out, we're on the street for Christmas Eve, so you can prove you're a grown-up? Nowhere is the possibility even mooted that Murray Jane may have friends or family that could help them with their current predicament. Elsewhere at Herdling's department store, Howell Thurston III is making poor Clark work his 23rd Christmas in a row. Clark may be his first or last name, no other name's given. Either way, he's had enough of it, and he's worked out that this is the perfect time to rob the store. See, this Christmas falls on a Saturday, and no banks are open on a Saturday, which means Thurston has had to arrange an independent security firm transfer the Christmas receipts, a situation Clark has been able to manipulate to his advantage. He's arranged his own private security firm, i.e. some thugs, to mug the real security firm and rob the takings. Then Clark will take his cut and go retire to a beach somewhere earning 20%. Incidentally, the original security guards are left tied up naked in the snow and are never mentioned again. I hope that they got found before they got severe frostbite of the fingers, toes and other extremities. Throughout the issue, Peter is in a funk, twice almost refusing to go into action as Spider-Man, but of course relenting in the end. Michelini throws in a lot of funny gags, from the removals man bemoaning the Parker's meagre tip, to Spider-Man being given a box of macaroons after rescuing an old lady from a mugging in Central Park. And yet another Bugle Christmas party, for those of you who were here for my Christmas episode where we saw what a Bugle Christmas party looked like in 1978. Oddly, it's not that different to 1988. It was only a gap of ten years. This is all offset by McFarlane's grim art. Some of it is very good. The full-page shot of Peter at Ben's grave and the shot of Spider-Man at the bottom of page 18 of him in the snow saying, next, after taking out the robbers. But the comedy scripting again seems at odds with the artistic tone. 
There's a nice scene where Flash says Peter and MJ can crash with him, a lovely acknowledgement to the growth in he and Peter's relationship since high school, and yet another reason to loathe volume two of this title, and a sweet scene between Peter and May at the cemetery, where Peter realises he's been a jerk, and he accepts May's offer to stay with her over the Christmas period. Writers, and some readers, treat May as an appendage or an irritant, but she's Peter's anchor to reality. He's not orphaned like Bruce Wayne, he's got a loving parental figure who is important to him. The story seems to be impressively close to real life in its locations. I googled them all, just for fun, because they're all mentioned in the body of the story. Bedford Towers is on the Upper West Side, the Bugle is on West 39th Street, and Herdlings is in Queens. Spider-Man stops a mugging in Central Park, directly opposite the Bedford Towers location, and then walks from there to the Bugle for the Christmas party. A perfectly doable thing, apparently. He catches the bus to Queens to visit the cemetery, and hears the gunshots from there. On a map, this all tracks really well, so kudos for Michelini for his realistic geography. This is a much better issue than the Inferno tie-ins, in so much as it is at least a Spider-Man story, not a Spider-Man story with some shoehorned-in elements from another comic, and the typical Christmas ending, the characters all supping eggnog and celebrating their family's love, is touching. But I hope the title decides on a direction soon. Next, Venom returns, and I will get to those issues sooner rather than later. Howdy, Nicholas Prom here. I want to tell you all about my new show, Captain Freakout's Psychedelic Radio. It's a weekly block of mind-altering music from the 60s, 70s, and beyond. Tune in, turn on, and freak out wherever groovy podcasts are consumed. That's Captain Freakout's Psychedelic Radio, available on all podcasting platforms, except for Spotify. Okay, let's have a look at the email section, should we? Jack Bond dropped us a message about Warwich. Warwich, which I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of. Thank you, Andrew, for that blast from the past, or blast from the future, the future of the past. Did you notice back when the past was the present that Book went from the future to a further future? Do you think that in the year 1987, the other astronauts made fun of Book for being so 1979? Actually, was Book ever really any better than being 1977? I've mentioned that before. I I find it quite amusing that when Butt Rogers was set in 1979, his Ranger 3's launch was in 1987, which at that point was also in the future. And I was very, very disappointed when 1987 rolled around and there was no Ranger 3 and there was no Deep Space Probe and it was all very upsetting. Not as upsetting as the moon not being blown out of orbit in 1990. Well, thinking about it, no, that that probably wouldn't have been a good thing, all things considered. But it does it does lend itself to an idea, doesn't it? Futuristic television shows that are now not futuristic. So in the Anderson canon, obviously you've got Space 1999, which is now 21 years in the past. 22 years in the past, we've rolled over into 2021, aren't we? And obviously UFO was made in 1970, but set in 1980. So that was futuristic at the time that it was made. But not anymore. And there may be a there may be a topic in that actually futuristic television shows that are now set in the past. Hmm, sounds quite interesting. 
On to Flight of the War Witch, continues Jack. There's an Alan Brennan article somewhere where he mentions he and the other writers wanted to name all those episodes Flight From or Flight To something for good pulpy consistency. It was someone higher up who chose such creative titles as Vegas in Space or Planet of the Amazon Women. I quite like the title Planet of the Amazon Women. By then, I'd seen enough of these aliens so strange that they have to present themselves as humans so we can comprehend them. I resolved not to notice them, acting all too human amongst themselves, but I couldn't help seeing that the attack was led by a carrier with small one-man fighters, much like the Draconia. Galactica's War of the Gods episode had a giant ship of lights with smaller spheres of light, but as they achieved their ends without firing at things, I hadn't noticed that they were a carrier and small craft until this show. At the risk of being unfair, I find it more forgivable in Battlestar Galactica, a sort of mythic as above, so below, or, as the 2005 version put it, this has happened before, this will happen again. That is, that's a good idea, that. Yeah, it's, so it's not enough that they are presenting themselves as humans so we can better understand and relate to them, but if that's the case, then why is all of the technology designed around bipeds? Mm, that's true. The book Roger ships were more colourful than the greys of Galactica or Star Wars. I'd like to credit the comic strips, especially the Sundays, but I wouldn't discount the influence from Jerry Anderson's effects models. Jack. Yes, there's an interesting idea there, isn't there? Uh, I'm I'm quite tempted by the idea of uh, a spaceship show or a show of um, formerly futuristic television shows that aren't futuristic anymore because time has caught up with them. That appeals to me as well. I'll, I'll think on that. Okay, our next email is Rob MacArthur, who says he's following up on his letter from last time. It's his third fan letter. One to Robert Plant. That seems perfectly viable. The guy who created Terror Inc. and me. I am honoured to be in such an auspicious list, Rob. Rob continues by saying, if the prisoner is really happening and not a dream delusion or anything else, it can get super scurry because the village is pretty damn English, so his own people are doing this. Well, isn't the implication in the prisoner that every nation has one of these villages? Certainly, that was the implication in the episode of Danger Man called Colony 3, which I have covered on an episode of this show, that many people see as the precursor to the prisoner, in which John Drake, as was, discovers that that very thing, there are places that spies are sent to, to train to go and work in, in other places, and to pass as if they were born in that place. But there's an idea there as well that he flipped that, there are places where spies are sent to after they retire, so not to be able to be kidnapped and give away their state secrets. But the implication being there are these in many different places. So yeah, the village may be the British version of the village, although the, the location of the village is given as different locations every single time a location is given. But there's a possibility that there are other villages around the world. Also in Fallout, they bring back the dead. Well, they bring back Leo McKern. Because, you know, who wouldn't bring back Leo McKern? Three, I don't think any but Fallout feel very much like a story arc. The channel I first watched on tried to make the case that number six starts learning in part one and knows all by number 17. Nowadays, I think there's a bunch of Tommy Rod. Number four, as to many happy returns, I love the raft parts. Great show, as always. All the raft bit, every bit of it's good. Uh, Tim Elliott's emailed in. Hello, Andy. The book stops here. Nice coverage of the book Rogers two-parter Flight of the War Witch. 
I saw the pilot film in the cinema back in 79, thinking it was another Star Wars knockoff. I did not know it was a TV pilot, and when the show finally made it to TV, I found myself a casual viewer. I thought the show was fun, but lacking in real imagination. The stories were watered down studio sci-fi, nothing to push the limits of TV storytelling at the time. The tech designs and space opticals were on a par with Battlestar, but the costumes relied on too much spandex, and I agree, they are not forgiving. Gil Gerard's charm carries much of the show, and Erin Gray is easy on the eyes. I know that makes me sound like a pig. No, it makes you sound like a man, and there's nothing wrong with that. By the show, it, but the show, sorry, felt like it was balancing on a wire. It never went for the mindless fun action space adventure, see the Flash Gordon film, nor did it tackle any story concepts beyond bad guy must be stopped. When it did try to be socially or thematically relevant, it felt a bit amateurish. The second season feels like a course correction with our team of heroes searching for a lost tribe, a theme borrowed from Battlestar Galactica. Like most kids growing up in the 70s, I was hungry for any sci-fi past Star Wars, so I watched it just like I watched Battlestar. I never fell in love with the series like I did with Steve Austin or Carl Kolchak, but I tuned in when I remember to and was entertained. What more can you ask of a show? Thanks for the trip down memory lane, and I look forward to your next inspiration. Cheers, Tim Elliott, host of Third Degree Burn. Shameless plug. We're not averse shameless plugs here, Tim. Yeah, see, this is this is one of the things lots of people... I mean, it's, it's your lifetime piling up, really, in that there is a lot of quality genre television around at the moment. Uh, there's a lot of shit around at the moment, but that's true of everything. But at the time, it was possible to keep up with everything. I mean, if you look at just when I was growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, you you had Doctor Who every week, 25 minutes. So it was perfectly easy to keep up with that. Depending on what region of England you lived in, depending on what ITV region you got. So you may be getting reruns of Anderson stuff like Space 1999 or whatever. In the early 80s, we got a rerun of Battlestar Galactica, which also got a rerun on the BBC in the late 80s, as did Buck Rogers. And there was occasional blips. Like, you know, you'd, you'd have reruns of Logan's Run or Other, Other World. Do you remember that? With Jared Martin, I think, was in that. And that would show up on occasion. The Greatest American Hero and... And then in the late 1980s, there was a bit of a, a, a syndication uptick. So in Star Trek The Next Generation and Friday the 13th, the series and War of the Worlds. But there was still nowhere near as much as there was or is nowadays. I mean, we were lucky when we got The Flash and Lois and Clark. But now, how many CW superhero shows are there? There's at least, is there six? I can't keep up with all of that. And that's ultimately why I keep retreating I think, into stuff that is easier to watch and keep up with. Our next email is from Alistair. I finally watched the original cast films. I presume that's Star Trek's original cast. Hi, Andrew. It's me, Alistair. I have finally listened to your episode on the Star Trek trilogy. I was going back a bit, isn't it? Search for Spock ended on such a downbeat that I needed time before I watched the follow-up films. Search for Spock ends up with them finding Spock. I mean, yes, David's dead and the crew are going to be drilled out of Starfleet and the Enterprise has been destroyed. Yeah, okay, now you mention it, it is a bit downbeat. I have now watched all of them through to Generations and will say that I ended up falling in love with the original series Kirk by the end of those films. I may have strongly negative feelings toward the actor, but few things will ever be as brave or as noble as Captain Kirk going unarmed onto a Klingon ship that was just attacked by Enterprise to plead for peace. The undiscovered country made me love Kirk. Well, that's interesting. 
See, I, I could find William Shatner to be on the turn, and I don't know what his views are. I don't really pay much attention. But I find Kurt really enjoyable. But you raise an interesting question that we live in at the minute. There's a lot of pearl clutching goes on at the moment, isn't there? Oh, I don't know if I can enjoy this because one of the people involved has views that are not the same as mine, but they're not playing themselves. You know, in the show, whatever you're watching, whoever's writing it or directing it or acting in it, whatever their personal views are, they aren't being that when they make that show. And it's not just them involved in that show. So if there is an actor in a television show that you otherwise enjoy, that has views that you don't particularly agree with, well, it doesn't really matter because that actor isn't being themselves in that thing that you are watching and enjoying. And I can enjoy an awful lot of stuff by people who I probably wouldn't agree with politically or whatever. doesn't really matter. But it doesn't matter at the end of the day because I'm watching a piece of entertainment that was created by a lot of different people. And therefore, I can put aside that one person's involvement in it. It's, you know, it's very easy to separate art from artists in certain situations. Alistair continues, Anyway, I hope you're well. I am now on series six of Voyager and realising that I'd not watched every other Star Trek series that is still being made. I would not be watching Voyager. Sometimes nerdy disturbedness is a curse. Actually, I've grown to quite appreciate Voyager recently. At least after my time away from your podcast, I got to catch up and enjoy your Spider-Man episodes. And you may be interested in how I bought the Erwolf box set after hearing you talk about it on the Palace of Glittering Delight so much. Well, I hope you, that's quite an investment. I hope you enjoyed it. Otherwise, that's a lot of money. <laughs> and finally tonight, our final email is from Ryan Daly. Hello, Ryan. Incredible Hulk movie feedback. The Hulk episode went down well, which I'm, I'm quite gratified by. Hello, Andy. Thank you for mounting this well-constructed defence of 2008's The Incredible Hulk. I've always liked this film since I first saw it two days after my wedding and just a few hours before getting on a plane for my honeymoon. As a matter of fact, whilst leaving the theatre with my new bride, I told Angela, I think I like that more than I am, ma'am. She looked at me like I was crazy and before she could run out and have the marriage annulled, I quickly explained that The Incredible Hulk was not a better movie, merely that I enjoyed it more. Since I've always been a bigger fan of The Hulk than Iron Man and because the Bruce Jones era of The Incredible Hulk comics is my sweet spot... Well, prior to the Immortal Hulk. And this was very close to being the perfect Hulk movie for me. What bothers me ever so slightly more than the fact that we've never gotten a real sequel to this film is the fact that we never got a prequel. The Incredible Hulk does play out like a superhero sequel, not to Ang Lee's Hulk, perhaps more to the Bixby TV series. But a whole lot of the emotion and exposition in this film is rooted in the backstory that the audience either has to infer from context or pick out from the opening credit sequence. Let me be clear, it's not a fault of the movie that the audience is asked to do a little more thinking about what came before these characters all walked on the screen, only that it feels a bit unusual for the genre. I think that's what I like about it, though. Honestly, I, I, I think one of the things that is very enjoyable about it is they kind of almost acknowledge that the war of the previous Hulk film, but it may not have happened exactly as you saw it, you know, memory cheats and all that stuff. Here's a three-minute opening credits, bringing you up to speed, let's move on. And I, I like that. I think sometimes you can get bogged down. Look, the brilliance of Star Wars was in the fact that George Lucas inferred a shit ton of backstory just from a few lines of dialogue. And we filled in all the blanks ourselves. And I think that an audience is capable of doing that without everything spoon-fed to them. 
Ryan continues, let me also reiterate that the Incredible Hulk did not need an entire movie explaining his origin, but I would have really, really liked one. It's an indulgence, I concede, but to me the origin of the Hulk is the best Silver Age origin Stanley ever wrote. Better than the Fantastic Four, better than Iron Man, better even than Spider-Man, up to the point where Peter realises who Uncle Ben's killer is. So yeah, I would have loved to see the Marvel Studios take on the Hulk's origin, drawn out with Bruce Banner rushing into the Gamma Bomb's kill zone to save Rick Jones, whilst a sinister double agent scientist refuses to abort the test. Maybe a Hydra plant for some world building, or AIM. Or maybe just a psychotically jealous Major Talbot, hoping to clear a path to Betty Ross. Anyway, whether you consider The Incredible Hulk a sequel to an origin movie we never got to see, it's still a damn fine Hulk movie. And like you, I instantly roll my eyes at any list that drops this at the bottom of the MCU. I've long maintained that the only real problem with the movie is that by the end of the Infinity Saga, it is mostly irrelevant. You can take it out of the viewing order and you don't lose anything from the greater story. In fact, by the time Banner and the Hulk are reintroduced in Joss Whedon's Avengers, not only has the role been recast, but Whedon and Ruffalo's take on the character is entirely different. Much more affable and charming, easier to integrate in a team setting, which is what he needed to work in the Avengers. Yeah, but now you mention that's not Bruce Banner, is it? Bruce Banner isn't a team player, much like Peter Parker in many ways. And he's not always affable and charming. He's prickly and sometimes a bit of a dick, which was a common thread through Stan Lee's characters, really. Anyway, the last thing I'll mention is I like some of the deleted scenes from Act 2. The extended scene between Ross and Blonsky, I think, does a better job of showing the types of men Banner and Ross were before the incident, and establishes more of the military Cold War thinking about weapons and power. I also really like that see a shrink scene between Banner and Samson, as it gives Ty Burrell more to do. Are these scenes essential to the film? No. But I like spending time with these characters talking, and to include them would have added more than two or three minutes to the total runtime. Anyway, great episode as always, Handy. Hope you're staying safe and healthy, Ryan. Thank you very much, Ryan, for that uh, in-depth email. It was good, that. Yeah. I like that we're on the same page and yet we still disagree about some things. I, I mean, I'm sure there are a couple of the deleted scenes that could have been put back in. But I think what I one of the things I like about The Incredible Hulk is it's not full of bloat. And it's quite hard to find a, a superhero movie nowadays that isn't full of bloat. You know, I don't think any superhero movie needs to be four hours long, does it? Guess we'll find out. Well, you guys may. I'm probably never going to find out. Anyway, that's it for this time. I hope you very much enjoyed it. I love going back and looking at Spider-Man because they're always fun. Thank you for everyone emailed in. Comics at virginmedia.com If you want to join the fun, it's all going to be okay. Yes, it is. Keep believing. And I'll see you all next time. Goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.